This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. I don't mean to sound dramatic, but when a service called ChatGPT first went live to the public, it kind of felt like an era-defining moment. All you had to do was go to a website and type a question or a request into a box, and you would get a response that sounded a lot like it came from a human. That was three months ago. Ever since then, that service, called ChatGPT, has churned out song lyrics and half-decent academic essays, computer code that actually works, and, for my benefit, explanations of how ChatGPT functions in terms a 10-year-old could understand. And now, according to the company that made it, the tech that makes ChatGPT as dazzling and as unnerving as it is just got an upgrade. It's called GPT-4. The new GPT is actually better in like a thousand different hard-to-tell ways. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter at The Post and covers AI. But I think the real cool thing in GPT-4 that's like the killer app is that it deals with images. You can upload an image and you can talk to GPT-4 and ask it to do things. Like, you can upload a, like, jokey meme and say, like, why is this meme funny? This is a pretty big step forward for a bot that you could only really type at before. But like any new product launch, Drew says this version of GPT has flaws, just like the old version. And GPT-4 is so advanced that OpenAI is not releasing that new image description feature to the public yet since they don't know exactly how it will be used. We don't know how this is going to be abused. We don't know how this is going to break and affect people's lives and be used to, you know, potentially throw people in jail or cost people their benefits and, you know, all the other ways we've seen um, even more sort of simple AI systems like facial recognition be uh, abused today. So I think, you know, it's a moment that is really exciting, but it's also unnerving because we just don't know how this is going to be used and how it could be affecting real people in the real world. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Chris Velasco, and I'm your guest host. It's Wednesday, March 15th. Today, how GPT-4 is pushing the boundaries of artificial intelligence and the new concerns this chatbot is already generating. How is GPT-4 different from what we might have experienced if we messed around with, say, ChatGPT a few days before this? Yeah, so the big thing... So, you know, when you look at it, it really just looks like the same old chatbot as before. You can talk to it, it can respond in all of these elegant ways. You can tell it to, you know, write a poem about a lion in space, and it will do that, you know, almost immediately. It'll read really well. OpenAI, the research lab that has made it, says it's more accurate in what it says, that it's better at sensing, you know, in commands that will break the rules and saying no to those. And it's also better at knowing which requests are actually harmless and being able to respond to those. I mean, there are some controls that OpenAI has folded in, like don't, you know, don't use this to do violent things or target people for harassment or do any kinds of like sketchy criminal stuff. And so 
GPT-4 is just better at responding to those kinds of things. It's also just um, more like cogent. Um, it, it has been shown by OpenAI to pass all of these, you know, AP and bar exams. There was a meme of like a bunch of chicken nuggets arranged in the pattern of like what looks like the world from space. And it had this like really like highfalutin fancy phrase on top. And somebody, you know, posted that meme and was like, GPT-4, why is this funny? And GPT-4 was able to like look at this image and assess that, well, it's funny because it's like this silly image of chicken nuggets in the world attached to this very like emotional, poignant saying. So that's like really kind of cool because, you know, when you're working with images, it's a whole other form of understanding that the AI has to go through. It's not just, you know, a bunch of words, but it's like diagnosing what's in a single image and then being able to like talk about it in a elegant way. The image part is I think really the most interesting advance and it's also so advanced that OpenAI has said we're a little afraid to share this publicly. Like, we don't really know how people will be using it. So it's only really allowed for specific researchers right now, and we may open it to the public when we feel more comfortable. So right now, if you want to muck around with GPT-4, you have to type queries into a chat box, and it'll talk to you in its own way. But are there other ways people will be able to kind of experience what GPT-4 kind of brings to the table? Yeah, OpenAI is um, going to be opening this up to other companies. Other companies are already using it. We actually just learned that the Bing chatbot that people have been using for a couple months has been running on GPT-4 the whole time. So the Bing chatbot that people were sort of losing their minds over because it said it could feel or think things and insisted to a New York Times reporter that he should leave his wife, that was using GPT-4 the whole time? Yes, Microsoft executives confirmed that yesterday. Microsoft is a big investor into OpenAI, so it makes sense. But yeah, so we have been we have been using this the whole time, and that sort of explains why the Bing chatbot is uh, so good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so other I know sorry to sorry to surprise you, but yeah, other companies are using this too. Duolingo, the little learning app with the owl for languages. It is starting to use this now too, where it'll have like a little chat bot that you can talk in different languages to it and it can give you feedback. They've been talking about using this as like a visual learning companion for people who like have eyesight issues or who are blind, where this could be like an image description app for you, which I think is really cool if it works. So, um, you know, OpenAI wants to not just sort of be the main source for this. They want to like feed this into a, a million different companies that all have their own needs for it. And, you know, Microsoft too, being a big investor, they want to fold GPT stuff into their search engine, their workplace software. So you can be typing a document and you can say, hey, write this resignation letter for me and GPT will roll out some big letter for you. So I think this, this is going to be something that's going to be in a lot of different businesses and we may not even always know that it's like behind the scenes uh, writing for us. Do you have a sense that anyone out there was disappointed or maybe underwhelmed a little bit by what we saw this week? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, even the open AI people were trying to say like, you know, Sam Altman who runs OpenAI, he said a couple months ago like, 
the hype cycle is crazy for GPT-4, like people are going to be disappointed, or, or pe- you know, people are begging to be disappointed, and they will, by what we're unveiling. Like Even as cool as what we're putting out there, it's still not going to be this you know, all-seeing, all-doing sci-fi wonder system. And it's not. Like We should be realistic that this is just the newest version of an imperfect uh, machine. And so, yeah, with what came out yesterday, I think the thing I was really hearing from a lot of AI researchers was that open AI, which always pledged to be open, didn't share a lot of like real technical detail. Like what was it training the system on? How big was the system? Like how did they really test it? There were a lot of details that they left out because they wanted to, in their words, stay competitive or prevent it from being misused. So that's scary for some researchers because like that opacity and that lack of transparency into how these systems works really prevents people from, you know, t- working on the ethical side to see like, okay, where are the risks here? How can we, you know, button up the ways that this can be misused? So there was a disappointment from that end. And there was also sort of a disappointment from some people who were like, okay, well, a new chatbot, who cares? Like, so, you know, I think AI over the last 50 years has gone through these periods known as AI winters where there's this huge excitement and hype cycle, and then we reach a point where we get like disillusioned by how good they are, and things feel like they start to plateau. But this new round of AI does feel a little different. Like The things that it's accomplishing now are leaps beyond what we have ever seen. So I think, you know, it, it, we really won't know how to assess this moment until like five or ten years from now, if we can know, like, this was all hype or this was actually something that was society reshaping. But um, yeah, I think, you know, we have to just take it for what it is in the moment and see like, okay, is this really going to change our lives or is this just the shiny new thing? After the break, how this step forward fits into the AI arms race. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. We've talked a bit about the AI arms race on Post Reports before, and I'm hoping you can give us a sense of how GPT-4 kind of fits into this. Yeah, so ChatGPT, just by virtue of being like so popular and so successful and a million people using it in like a day, really revved up the jealousy engines of every tech company in Silicon Valley. Like all of these tech companies are pretty much working on the same kinds of AI. And, you know, to be honest, like OpenAI wasn't doing anything that was uniquely amazing compared to the others. A lot of it was just sort of marketing. Um, so for ChatGPT to like take off and make Google, Facebook, and the other big like AI people sort of seem like second fiddle, um, that kind of got under their skin. And so everybody is kind of racing to unveil their own. But you know, it has become this, yeah, this arms race where all these companies are spending like literally billions of dollars on the best AI engineers there are, the biggest supercomputing infrastructures, the most marketing, because they all sort of see, well, one, that there's like this current day excitement and 
halo that they want to get from customers. But two, they also do feel like there could be like industry shaping power here. These could be the new like multi-billion dollar businesses. So they want to be in on the ground floor. Um, So if you're an ethicist or somebody worried about how these things can be misused, that's like kind of unsettling to you. Like, are we are we racing too quickly to something that could end up leaving people hurt? You raise a really good point. I feel like most of the people I know have really kind of started talking about GPT and generative AI, I don't know, within the last six months to a year, but the development that's gone into this has, has stretched back much further than that. Can you sort of remind us what problems and issues GPT and chat GPT have kind of run into in the past? So the GPT issues, one is that GPT systems are taught to like speak in a really persuasive way. Like when you read it, it reads like, wow, this is great syntax. It reads well, but they're not taught facts. Maybe that's something they can work on, but I think that's a big issue. You can't, you can't always trust that what you're getting is going to be reliable. Two, you know, the bias issue really is an issue. Like the fact that it's perpetuating prejudices that humans have, you know, taught it is a, a problem that can like rise up in a lot of different ways. And if this is going to be a tool that we're all going to be using for work, life, and school, that's that's a big problem. Three, they're also just really vulnerable to attack. I mean, they, these things can be hacked. They have this thing called like prompt injections, where if you know the right phrases to say, you can get the AI to, you know, reveal how it was trained or like do all sorts of harmful things. So, you know, these systems are flawed and they're also very unpredictable. So even the developers are surprised by what GPT-4 says sometimes. And, you know, that leads to some really cool, creative, inspirational surprises. And it also leads to like some really kind of scary responses because the AI is not awake. It's not like sentient, but it can say some things that will really make you sort of like go, huh, like that 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 shouldn't be what I see from this really fancy computer. You know, the companies say they address these things over time, but I don't know that they are ever totally solvable problems. And they're big problems, and they're, they're ones that may not be able to go away. So in some ways, GPT-4 does feel like an improvement over chatting with GPT-3 in a text box. But I'm curious, what are the sort of downsides to tools like this becoming more advanced? I mean, I guess one downside that people always bring up is like the jobs. Uh, You know, this has been like an age-old classic fear with the AI going to take our jobs and put us out of work. And I don't think that's going to be something that's going to happen in a single day. And I think it'll actually be a little more gradual. I mean, it's going to be taking on tasks and sort of complementing our work and maybe not, you know, putting us out of business entirely. But, you know, one of those examples from the Microsoft exec was like, hey, we can use this in a call center and it can listen to customers and it can summarize what they were saying and then respond to them. And it'll save us, you know, 500 hours of work a day or whatever. And it's like, okay, but those were going to be like people working eight-hour jobs doing this, right? And maybe like working at a call center is not all that compelling, but it was just, it was still work. So I think, you know, as these things get more advanced, they're going to be making employers question, well, why would I pay somebody who needs sick leave in weekends when I could just pay this machine? So that's one thing we haven't totally grappled with. 
And also, you know, as they get more advanced, they're going to be uh, better deceivers, better liars. They're going to sound like they know what they're talking about and not have a clue. You know, they're really, I like to say they're confidently wrong. Like whatever they'll respond to when you ask for something, no matter whether they're actually right or wrong, they will sell it. So we've talked a bit about the downsides of these large language models already, but are their creators, like OpenAI in this case, what are they doing to try and prevent these downsides? And what's your sense of where this work is taking them so far? Yeah, so they are aware of this. I mean, OpenAI specifically, and, and a lot of the other companies too, they pay like policy researchers and what they call like red teams to game out like what are the what are the avenues for abuse? Like if you tell it to, you know, create a new chemical bomb or something, is it going to be able to do that? And how do we stop it from doing So they're, they are aware of these, but, you know, in some sense, they're like trying to patch up holes in a dam in a way because this system really is so unpredictable. The only way they can really interact with it is by talking with it in the same way that, you know, normal users do. So they can kind of put it through its paces, but just due to how vast the AI's training base is and how many ways it can respond, is it's going to be kind of hard to get to that, you know, 100% or even 99% level of like knowing what it's going to say and being able to address all the, all the dangerous sides. Allowing companies like OpenAI to police themselves is one thing, but when I look at what's possible with models like GPT-4, I have to wonder if you know, leaving this to the industry is enough, you know. What's your sense of what the government makes of all of this? Um, not a lot, you know. Congress has always been ridiculed for the casual understanding of how technology works. I mean, we're just now starting to think about laws about social media, which is something we've had been dealing with for, what, 15 years? Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, we don't have any real good bills about how AI should be policed, restricted, limited, governed. You know, there are some state measures. There are some specific little things people have tried to tackle, like, you know, deep fakes and non-consensual porn and that kind of thing. But, like, as for a comprehensive bill that would hold these companies to some form of standard. We just don't have it. And I think that's going to be something that's really glaring as these systems gain more wide acceptance. Is it okay that these companies are the first line of defense against, you know, people being potentially swindled out of money or lied to or getting impersonated? And, you know, as we have seen many times with tech, like self-policing does not work. The company's incentives and goals are wildly different sometimes than what, you know, policymakers and the general publics are. So, yeah, we need some we need some kind of framework. I mean, you think about something like the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, thinking about like pharmaceuticals. You know, when you think about a drug, you have to get it from a special licensed pharmacy and a pharmacist. That drug has to be tested and researched in all of these really specific and strict ways. I mean, to get a drug on the market is extremely difficult and expensive. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. You have to have clinical trials. You have to game out the side effects. Um, and that's for one pill that's administered in a really specific way. 
meanwhile, we have these giant, you know, facial recognition systems used by the police. We have these language models that are online right now. There's, there's no hoops they have to jump through. Anybody can use them. So I think it's just a way to like think about how different it could be and maybe should be that we don't have any kind of like tech regulation to keep these things overseen by the government. Drew Harwell, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Drew Harwell covers AI for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Rena Flores. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. Hearing from you helps us make the show the best it can be, and it helps other people hear what we're working on, too. I'm Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.